It's been, oh, four or five years ago. Some of you are familiar with uh, George Barna and his organization. They, they do a lot of, of work uh, designed to uh, help churches better understand culture and to better understand uh, the religious climate, we might say, in our, our country. And Barna asked this question uh, just a few years ago, uh, 2015. What do Americans believe about Jesus? And once all the data came in and Barna and his people organized it, they discovered basically five what he calls popular beliefs about Jesus. Number one, the vast majority of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. Uh, 92%, in fact, say Jesus Christ was a real person who actually lived. A second thing that Barna discovered about uh, what people think uh, concerning Jesus in our country, younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe that Jesus was God. So even though the historicity of Jesus, the fact that he was indeed a human being and walked upon this earth, uh, even though 92% again believe in his uh, historicity, not many are as confident that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Uh, that percentage drops to 56%. And that percentage becomes even less the younger the age of individuals. A third thing that uh, Barna discovered about Jesus, uh, things that people think about Jesus in our country, Americans are divided on whether Jesus was sinless. Perhaps reflective, he says, of their questions about Jesus' divinity, Americans are conflicted on whether Jesus committed sins during his earthly life. And again, the percentage is around 50%. So um, he might have been a real person, but he, he was just that. He, he was maybe just a good teacher or a philosopher. Maybe no different than uh, the Buddha or some other uh, philosopher that we know about from, from history. A fourth thing says that most Americans have made a commitment uh, to Jesus. On the whole, America is still committed to Jesus. The act of making a personal commitment to Jesus, often seen as the first step in becoming a Christian, is a step that nearly six in 10 Americans say they have taken and moreover, that commitment is still important uh, in their life uh, today. So a number of, of people, more than half of Americans, uh, would confess some kind of commitment to Jesus. Um, again, who, whoever he might be. And then finally, people are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds or good works as the way to heaven. And a lot of that thinking, of course, would depend on whether or not you believe in the deity 
of Christ. Whether or not you believe that Jesus is uh, God's Son and He is the Savior of the world. Well, I asked uh, Kyle to read uh, a text from Matthew 16 that we're all familiar with. It occurred probably halfway into Jesus' public ministry. He has taken his closest followers up uh, north of the Sea of Galilee in the area of Caesarea Philippi, and he has taken them into an area dominated by pagan religion. And as they retreat to this area, uh, Jesus and his disciples are, are surrounded by pagan gods and the worship of pagan deities. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? And uh, public opinion was that he perhaps is a prophet raised from the dead, maybe even Elijah or Jeremiah or some other uh, famous uh, historical prophet that re we read about in the uh, Old Testament. But then he says, but who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter makes that uh, great confession, as we sometimes say, that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And Jesus goes on uh, to bless Peter in that confession and uh, talks about how he will build his church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of, of hell, the gates of death will not over power it. Well, we initiated a study of the book of Colossians just a few Sundays ago, and our theme is uh, chapter 2 in verse 8, where Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition and the elemental spiritual powers of this world rather than on Christ. And in our first two lessons, we've looked at the first 14 verses of Colossians chapter 1 where Paul kind of follows a, a typical pattern or a typical model of introducing himself with some opening uh, greetings. Um, he thanks the Christians in Colossae uh, for their faith. He offers a, a prayer on their behalf. And now we come to verse 15. And with verse uh, 15, Paul really begins to get into what we might call the heart of the letter. He's really going to begin to address this temptation of following after even being taken captive by human uh, philosophy. So I find it interesting that Paul's primary way of dealing with a church problem is to give this, this stunning unveiling a reminder of who Jesus is. We might say that the Colossians were experiencing a deficiency of Jesus. And so beginning in verse 15, we have uh, what some scholars would argue is an ancient Christian hymn. If you were in one of our adult Bible classes this morning, our text assigned was uh, Philippians chapter 2. 
And in verses 6 through 11, we find uh, another text uh, about Jesus that many suggest is an ancient Christian hymn. It's certainly very poetic. Uh, That is why I've titled this lesson this morning, Paul the Poet. Because as he begins again to to address these issues in uh, the church in Colossae, he begins by pointing them back to Jesus. And he reminds them of who Jesus is. And when they perhaps are being tempted to um, abandon Jesus, or maybe mix a little of this or that with Jesus, he reminds them of the deity of Jesus, his humanity, the impact that Jesus had when he entered this world. So here is what I believe to be the primary point this morning. So if you don't listen any time else today, listen to this, all right? If you ever get to the place where Jesus isn't enough or where you can advance beyond Christ, then your Jesus is too small. If you ever get to the place where Jesus isn't enough or where you can advance beyond Christ, then your Jesus is too small. And so Paul the poet begins in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 and paints this beautiful portrait for us of just how big Jesus is and just how great Jesus is and just how sufficient Jesus is for our spiritual well-being and for our own spiritual walk with God. The Son, he says, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all uh, to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. So who is Jesus? Well, Paul tells us in, again, this this beautiful poem, even perhaps an ancient Christian hymn. And you you might analyze this text in, in a number of ways, but I find at least 12 things about Jesus that Paul lists in this poem. First of all, a couple of things in Christ's relationship to God. He begins by identifying him as his son, the promised one. You know, we can go back to several of the Psalms, particularly of David, 
that uh, we find uh, prophetically referring to the Son, to the promised Messiah. And so Paul begins to answer this question of who is Jesus by making this point. Secondly, in relationship to God, he says that, that, that uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Uh, the word there is, is a word we're familiar with, icon, uh, is, is the Greek word. And in this text, it, it probably uh, is referring to, to the fact that Jesus is an exact representation of God. In other words, the invisible God, Paul says, is made visible through Jesus. And so these first two terms um, begin to tell us and remind us who Jesus is as uh, God's Son and how Jesus reveals God to us. The next several verses, in answering this question, who is Jesus, we see his relationship to creation. Um, Paul says that he is the firstborn. Now, there are two ways, two ways to um, define firstborn. It may be in relationship to birth order. You know, for example, my parents are here today. They have three children. I am the firstborn. All right. Ronnie's next, about two and a half years younger than I am. And then Risa who is about 15, nearly 15 years uh, younger than I am. But that's not the way Paul is using firstborn in this context. A second way points to status, rank, and preeminence. Now, if Ronnie were here this morning, uh, he would probably agree to me that even though Risa is the thirdborn, she's probably the preeminent one. She certainly got more, in, more attention than Ronnie and I ever got. That's not true. I'm just, I'm just teasing. Right? But that's the, the, the way Paul is using uh, this word uh, to describe Jesus here, that uh, he's not the firstborn of creation in the sense that he was created first. He is eternal with the Father. But if, when it comes to status or to rank or to preeminence, Jesus is the firstborn. He goes on to talk about how Jesus was involved with the Father in creation. And so we might say he is an agent of creation. Paul says he is before all things. Again, I think emphasizing the eternal nature of Jesus. Uh, before creation, Jesus was one with the Father and with the Spirit. And he goes on to make the point that Jesus sustains creation. Right? And so if you ask me, well, is Paul saying that God was creator or Jesus was creator? The answer would be yes. Right? Jesus was involved, again, one with the Father, one with the Spirit. But then he, as he continues to answer this question about who is Jesus, he spends most of his time describing Jesus and his relationship to the church. And I, again, I, the way I counted at least six things 
plus the four and the first two to get uh, the dozen things that uh, Paul uh, writes about to, to answer this question, who is Jesus? But he says, first of all, he is the head of the church. And the word translated head there can... Um, can be defined in a number of ways, kind of depending upon uh, the context. Of course, he's not talking about a physical head, but uh, symbolically or figuratively, uh, if the church is the body of Christ, Jesus is the head in the sense of directing it. Um, he is the authority over the church. Paul says, secondly, he is the beginning of the church. It's through Jesus as we saw in Matthew 16 that the church was established, he uses once uh, again the word firstborn. This time he describes Jesus as being the firstborn from the dead. And again, first place in the sense of uh, being the resurrected one, the preeminent one who never died again. You know, other people uh, through the power of God were raised from the dead. Jesus raised some people from the dead, but they died again. And they're in their tombs and, and awaiting the second coming of Jesus. But Jesus is first place or preeminent among the resurrected because his death paves the way for us. And he has been resurrected never to die again. Uh, Paul uses the word supremacy next. The fourth thing in his relationship, uh, Jesus' relationship to the church. It is the, he is the fullness of God. Again, uh, if we want to see uh, what God is like, if we want to see how uh, the church is to live, we look at Jesus. And then, finally, Paul introduces another kind of kind of theological word, which gives us another word picture, much like redemption uh, that we studied last week. But the word this week is reconciler, or the idea of, of reconciliation. And there probably were two or three different kind of contexts or word pictures that his initial readers might have thought of. I tend to think that uh, when they heard this concept of Jesus being a reconciler, they would go to that concept again when there are opposing parties and the guilty party would try to initiate some term of peace to bring balance to the relationship. But Jesus, God through Jesus, kind of flips that idea and God, who is the offended one, is the one who initiates peace and initiates reconciliation through Jesus. He makes peace, Paul tells us, through the blood of Christ. So as these Christians are in danger of being captivated by humanistic philosophy or human tradition... As Paul begins to address that issue, he points them to Jesus. And he asks the question, who is Jesus? And he reminds them in this beautiful poem or even perhaps this ancient Christian hymn. But the text doesn't stop there. Uh, Paul continues in verses 21 through 23 
And he lists the implications then for his readers and for us because of who Jesus is. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul does something I find interesting in this text. Again, based on who Jesus is, and uh, at least by my account, 12 very, very meaningful, very powerful things of who he is. And now in, in these verses, he lists several implications, and he wants his readers to reflect upon their past, their present, and their future. And he, he says, and you, which in the, in the Greek text is, is in the very beginning of this text, which puts some emphasis upon it. And he wants his readers to understand that, that who Jesus is has this personal application. Right? It means something, or it should mean something uh, to you and to me and to us collectively as the church, the body of Christ. But once... In their past, they were alienated from God and even enemies of God by their evil behavior. Right? But again, he uses the word reconciliation there to emphasize what uh, Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so he wants them to remember their present deliverance. No longer are they alienated. No longer do they need to be an enemy of God. No longer should they succumb to evil behavior. Their lives have changed. And so he kind of points to the future to remind them that they will be presented to God, holy and perfect and innocent. And so as they, they reflect upon their past and they realize where they are in Christ in the present and what awaits them in the future, we find in verse 23 this challenge to continue in the faith. If you study the Gospel of John, one of his favorite words, depending on your English translation, you'll, you'll read Jesus encouraging his disciples to abide in something. Abide in my word. Continue is another translation. Well, Paul uses the same word, but he intensifies it. And, and so it's not just abide, but really abide. I mean, don't ever abandon Jesus. Don't ever give up on your Lord. Always continue to trust in Him and to be in Christ. And he says, so you'll be established and firm. There is a, a building metaphor here of, of laying the solid foundation the NIV says not moved. I think some of the older translations uh, read not shifting, which would have been very relevant 
to a group of people who lived in an area that frequently faced um, earthquakes. And, and in fact, uh, history tells us in about 60 AD, this area was devastated by a, a large earthquake. And in fact, many believe that's why Colossae begins to diminish in importance. Oklahoma, of all places, over the past decade, has begun to experience a number of earthquakes. And there's a lot of debate as to why those earthquakes are occurring. And it's, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of become a novelty. Now, you can, you know, get bumper stickers. I survived the 3.6 earthquake, you know, in Bow, Oklahoma. And, and places, places like that. But occasionally, we would feel them in Edmond or Oklahoma City. And, and you kind of learn to, to feel and to sense, and you know an earthquake's coming just a couple of seconds because you hear it. You hear it first. But, but of course, there, there aren't any, like California, there aren't any structures in Oklahoma that are built to sustain earthquakes. And, and so Paul, again, kind of subtly, I, I think, is, is using this building metaphor to remind his readers, be sure your life is earthquake-proof. Be sure you have that solid foundation of Jesus Christ. And be sure you're building properly upon that solid foundation of Jesus, remembering who Jesus is. So to conclude this morning, it might be, just as those Christians in Colossae, we are suffering from a Jesus deficiency order, or disorder, that should be, JDD. That, that maybe we are not reflecting upon, remembering who Jesus is. And, and maybe as, as we are being tempted uh, to mix Jesus with a little something else, or even abandon Jesus completely to remember Jesus as our Lord and as the Son of God. And so let me suggest four things to help us overcome perhaps our own uh, Jesus deficiency. Again, number one, remember who Jesus is. Twelve things here. We could go to the Gospels and probably make a list of a dozen more things. You know, we can go to the writings of, of Peter. We can go to John. We can go to James. We, in any, any text, Old Testament, New Testament, and find Jesus. And remember who He is. And, and remember that, that He's God's Son. He is deity. And yet at the same time when he came to this earth, he, he became a human being just like us. And so he understands us. And he knows us. And he became the perfect sacrifice for us. And so not only is he God's son, he is our Savior. And he desires to be our Lord. Don't forget who Jesus is. A second way is to read the Gospels as your primary text. Now, in our, in our Wednesday night Bible class, we've, we've been talking a little bit about uh, how kind of traditionally uh, in, in churches of Christ, our, our canon within the canon 
has been Acts 2 through Jude. All right? and, and maybe because of that, we have tended to neglect the Gospels. And yet it's in the Gospels that we can really read and understand and hopefully get to know Jesus. And so here is this, this challenge to enlarge our, our text to include all of God's Word. I mean, all uh, canon, you know, Genesis, as one of my instructors used to say at sunset, to the maps. All right? And it's important, certainly, to understand the church age, Acts 2 to Jude. But it's also important to understand the life of Jesus because, after all, He is our Savior. And to even understand Revelation. And that's a different, that's a different study. Uh, Mom was, was telling me their minister, the Southwest Congregation in Ada, one of his New Year's challenges to that church was to read the, through the Gospels once a month. And you can do that by reading about three chapters a day. So Mom accepted that challenge and this time next year, she will have read the Gospels through 12 times. That's, I like that. You might prepare. That could be our challenge next year. I'm going to steal it from him. But, but read the Gospels. Number two, or excuse me, number three, recalibrate around Jesus' core teachings. I mean, if you ask me, if you're going to have a canon within a canon or a canon within the canon of the canon, I'd say Sermon on the Mount. And, and especially spend time in that text. I mean, if you, if you want to be challenged, if you want to try to measure your life up against Jesus, go study and read and apply that text to your life. Or, or it may be some of the parables or it might be John 17, the, the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays. Or, or some other text within the Gospels. But recalibrate your life. Check your life against the core teaching of Jesus. And then finally, reproduce Jesus in your life. I thought it was a very powerful uh, text this morning that was assigned to us in our adult Bible classes. And the title of this morning's lesson was Imitate Christ. Imitate Jesus. And our text was Philippians 2. And there Paul says in verse 5, Have the mind of Christ. In other words, think like Jesus. And the idea being there, if we're thinking like Jesus, we'll become like Jesus and will reproduce Jesus in our lives. Walmart even came up in Bible class this morning, and I didn't bring it up. Daisy Redding did. I think she went to Walmart last week. You know, Again, a good place to become more like Jesus, or work, or school, or, or, or wherever. As, as we uh, think more about Jesus and as we remember who he is and as we read more and more from the Gospels and we begin to understand the, the power of living a life of obedience to God, of reprodu reproducing Jesus in our lives and watching what God can do uh, through us and with us.
Gandhi, the Indian philosopher, uh, activist once said, you Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I've, I've read, perhaps you've seen uh, the film about the life of Gandhi. Uh, he, he was so impressed and so moved by the teachings of Jesus. But like many Americans, just thought of Jesus as a good teacher, a good philosopher. His teachings important to perhaps uh, consider. But what a, what, a, what a powerful statement for us to think about. That, that as he better understood Jesus and then as he associated with those who wore Christ's name to make this observation. So maybe if we actually knew Jesus, we would reflect him more. And, and as we, we learn more about Jesus, and again, remember who Jesus is, and as we read more from the Gospels and we focus upon some of the core teachings of Jesus, that we become more sincere in our lives. And we, we seek uh, to reflect Jesus more in our lives. And again, it all begins with remembering who He is. He's God's Son, and He's our Savior. And so just as Paul would want or wanted his original readers to understand very emphatically that, that this, this is a personal thing, the question to ask this morning is personal. Is Jesus my Savior? Is he mine? And if not, we're going to give you an opportunity to claim Jesus as your Savior. You can confess him as the Son of God. You can repent of your past life. You can be immersed into his name so that your sins might be forgiven. And now as you wear his name to courageously and to boldly go forth reflecting the life of Jesus in your own life. Is Jesus your Savior? Won't you come while we stand and sing?